Hello, I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. We're proud to present this series of 10 discussions with prominent British Columbians in what we call the BIV Business Leadership Series, where they're going to share their views on the impact of the pandemic and how our economy can recover. Our series is sponsored by PwC and by FASCM. Their messages appear at the start and finish of our conversations, and we're brought to you by UBC Souter Executive Education. All of its programs are running online now until the end of the year, offering an opportunity to engage with faculty and peers in virtual classrooms. Enjoy the conversations. PwC Canada, our purpose is to build trust in society and solve important problems. What we have today is a very important problem. This pandemic affects us all globally. In BC, as the curve continues to flatten, we're settling into new ways of working and considering what business as usual may look like going forward. We are proud at PwC to sponsor this podcast series from Business in Vancouver to talk about what business leaders should know. Returning to the workplace isn't just about physical places. It's about finding opportunities to thrive in this new era. So let's keep the conversation going. Thanks a lot for joining us today for the BIV Business Leadership Series of discussions with prominent British Columbians about the impact of the pandemic on our economy and steps our leaders believe are necessary for us ahead. I'm Kurt LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief of EIB. Tamara Vrooman is one of our province's most accomplished business leaders with a resume that would uh, take us quite a lot of our session to cite, but uh, former deputy finance minister who assumed the leadership of Van City nearly 14 years ago now. Under her guidance, the membership-owned uh, financial cooperative has grown to more than half a billion dollars in revenue, nearly 3,000 employees. And then she recently signaled that uh, she's going to be leaving Van City to be the CEO of our airport, YBR, from uh, one institution to another, maybe uh, one frying pan to a fire or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, she joins me now. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks very much, Kirk. Um, Bring me back uh, in weeks, months, whatever. How did you... uh, how did you first apprehend what we were um, lurching toward here in a pandemic? What, what were some of the early signals for you? Well, I had the uh, either the coincidence or the the, the good fortune of uh, being in Europe for a uh, uh, international values-based banking meeting in Bern, Switzerland, in late mm-hmm. February. And so, just as things were starting to emerge there in for both Germany, but also for Northern Italy, I was then making my way back home uh, to Vancouver through Frankfurt. And I think I saw uh, there a little bit earlier than uh, we saw it here, what could happen uh, when they started to announce some changes uh, in people's mobility in a place like Switzerland, of course, people live in Italy and work in Switzerland and so very back and forth, back and forth. And having that change quite suddenly uh, was uh, a, a bit of a, a wake-up call for me, certainly, as I came back uh, here to Vancouver in Canada. And so I think we had a pretty good indication that things would could be materially different uh, quite mm-hmm. quickly. 
And so shortly before there was a, an official state of emergency, we were already working on our pandemic response plan, standing up our uh, emergency response and all of the things that many organizations did to make sure first and foremost, our staff, uh, health and well-being were safe, and then that we could also serve our members in different uh, ways, knowing that they would need access to their finances during, uh, during this time. I may have taken it too seriously at the beginning. I'm, I'm still not sure, mm. but I'm asking people whether they feel in hindsight, they, they might've taken it too seriously or they really weren't able to judge just how the breadth of this thing. Yeah. I think in my particular case, uh, as I said, coming from Europe, uh, I definitely uh, saw what it could look like or the beginning of it. Uh, so took it quite seriously. I, I actually uh, came home and felt a little unwell. So oh. was one of the early people tested uh, for COVID. Oh, really? Okay. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So a, a negative, uh, but still had that whole experience. And the sight of my uh, my family physician in full PPE was not something that uh, we were accustomed to at at that. And I would say probably the most striking thing for me in that experience, uh, somebody I know very well. Uh, he's been my uh, physician for a while, was uh, the look in his eyes when he was uh, administering the test. He looked quite nervous and frightened, actually. Sure. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, the health, uh, the health professionals are, uh, are quite worried. Given my background in, uh, in government, I knew that we had a very good health system here and they would uh, be very well prepared. But you could see that they uh, knew that it was going to be difficult. And so I think we took it quite seriously uh, early on, but always with people at the center, uh, both our employees and our members, and that allowed us to uh, stand up some things quite quickly that uh, really have served us, but more importantly, our members uh, well during this unprecedented. Have your employees uh, stayed safe? Have you had they any? Have. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we've, we've continued to test uh, our employees and, um, and we have not had uh, we've not had any incidents, so we're we're good. Um, what do you think surprised you? I think what surprised me uh, in a good way is uh, is how quickly we all adjusted. So beyond just uh, our business, people in my neighborhood, people in community, you know, we often talk about the difference between. Uh, the United States and Canada, and we know that we share uh, many things in common, but there are a few things that are different. And where our constitution is peace, order, and good government, theirs is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think this uh, this situation has really shown the difference. The fact that people really, after just being asked to, <laughs> stayed home and uh, stayed away and took the necessary steps and adjusted their lives in the most profound way, um, is encouraging uh, uh, in a way because it was so extraordinary and we've been able to do, I think we're recognized across the country for uh, taking the early steps collectively in a responsible way that while in no way eliminating the effects of uh, COVID-19 uh, certainly have made them less than they otherwise would be. One of the first uh, gestures I think almost any business made uh, in in COVID era was your gesture around uh, interest rates. Yes. Around, around credit card. What were you apprehending about your 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 membership 
and maybe what it was going to require in this time in a way of, um, of you know, that kind of a gesture from a business. Well, because we are a, a member-owned cooperative, you know, we've always been about members helping members and particularly in times of need. So going way back to the financial crisis in uh, 2008, we had already a policy of loan deferrals, making sure that members who needed them, whether it's their mortgages or their uh, business lines of credit or what have you, that they could defer uh, those payments. So when uh, the pandemic hit, we stood that up right away, extended it to six months as, uh, as the major banks did, and had that program in place. But as everything changed and we were ordering our groceries online and ordering uh, from restaurants online and some retailers were not accepting cash and, 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 it became very clear that uh, credit cards weren't just uh, nice to have, they were essential. And yeah. that we needed to make sure that our members had the maximum uh, availability of their balances to pay for the things that they needed in everyday life. And so uh, really making sure that they weren't uh, charged interest for this time so they could maximize the, not irresponsibly, but of course maximize the amount of credit room that they had was uh, quite important. So we made the decision based on the fact that we could see that our members really needed that support in a very unprecedented time and made that change. And unfortunately, I think we're the only financial institution in the country that, uh, that did that. Yeah. But, uh, but I was proud to do so because it helped out the people when they needed it the most. I, I think like I'm going to give you an opportunity to preach a bit and judge a bit here in this question. But um, do you worry that a lot of both financial institutions and you and I have talked about areas like shadow financing are, you know, are, are you know, going to make it too easy for a lot of people to fall into financial peril in this time? We are. That is something that we're looking at, Kirk, for sure. Uh, so the prevalence of uh, payday lenders uh, has really increased in uh, in Vancouver and in our whole region over the last number of years. And I do worry that people that have uh, no other choice and have been out of work or their business has been forced uh, into shutdown or the maximum a number of people they can have in their restaurant is 50%, even on a good day, that they're going to be turning to uh, payday lenders and high interest providers and just taking on that debt and then thinking, well, we'll figure it out uh, later if we get to if we get to later. So we are monitoring that quite closely uh, to make sure certainly in our membership that uh, that they have an alternative, which which they do. We have an alternative to payday lenders, but we're also gathering that data and sharing it openly with governments, with regulators, uh, with other financial institutions, uh, because we want to make sure that it's something that isn't uh, present in the economy, not just in our membership. Yeah. Do you, do you see certain business practices now, um, not just already altering, but perhaps permanently altering? I, I see some uh, changing uh, for sure. So the ability, uh, you know, the local, the local pizza restaurants in my neighborhood uh, looks pretty typical uh, to the ones that we see across our membership and across our region. Uh, they've got uh, a nice uh, uh, in in uh, in-house presence where we used to go and sit uh, now that's fully closed and even though they can open they're not because uh, mm -hmm. takeout and takeaway is working so well now there's 
uh, service that always had a takeout uh, provision, but we're seeing that extended to hardware stores, to paint stores, uh, to other kinds of retailers. So I do think the retail landscape is, is changing. Will it change permanently to be one form or the other? Uh, I personally don't think so. I think we'll see a lot more uh, hybrid models coming up though, where you maybe order things online, come in and pick them up at a certain time, try them on, those kinds of things that make both the customer experience more personal, um, but also more efficient. Right now, we haven't quite got the efficiency part. You know, There's still those long lineups yeah. and yeah. we're all accustomed to the X's where we stand and all of that. There's no such thing as popping in to get something anymore. So that will need to change uh, uh, again. But I do see that the definitely the combination of uh, online and in-person has taken a significant step forward. When I'm at a supermarket now, I feel like I'm on a time limit shopping spree. <laughs> like I, I, bet I can't go down an aisle twice. It's one, one and done. Like, you yeah. know, Right. You miss what you're going to get for dinner. We'll come back tomorrow and get it tomorrow. Like it's yeah, that's pretty, right. Or even, or even, even next week. It's true. Uh, it's it's changed. Uh, it's changed uh, grocery shopping uh, certainly. Are pretty well, um, all of your employees working from home now or working remotely. Well, banking uh, was uh, declared an essential service by the province of British Columbia. So we do have uh, 22 of our formerly 59 branches uh, open for service. And so uh, we do have a portion of our staff uh, working to serve our members uh, in person, of course, with plexiglass and all of the things we know. We, we very early on established a system where we'd have a sort of three-week rotation just in case we did have an outbreak, uh, we would have redundancy built in behind for a second shift. Uh, we'd have people working in a branch and then they'd move to supporting uh, the call center because our call center volumes went from like 1500 calls a day to over 5,500 calls a day. So really want to make sure we're there to serve our members. Yeah. And then it was a stressful period at the beginning and people were juggling with, with things at home and kids off school and, and elderly parents care, all of that. So then we had a week of respite as well. So it made sure that we have our employees are rested and healthy. Uh, they're uh, able to serve our members. And so we have a certain portion of our members, uh, staff members who are working that way. And then the vast majority, be it our IT folks, finance, HR, marketing, uh, and our call center are working from home. So we have about 2,800 people who are, uh, are working from home. And we've, like many, done some surveys to see whether they'd like to continue working from home. And uh, the vast majority like the flexibility Hardly anybody says they only want to do that forever, yeah. but certainly uh, because of the challenges of commuting and transit and things, people are happy to be able to take some time to work. I don't know whether your business has gyrated the way that a lot of other businesses have, but um, I think some owners and operators now are beginning to apprehend kind of the COVID cost in overall, like how much more expensive is it just for me to do regular business, forget about what it is that I've lost. Is there is there a premium that I, the business leaders are going to have to accept somehow in this period where it is just a bit more of a workaround, a bit less efficient, a few more things that have to be done in order to make sure that they, they can operate? Oh, I think so. Uh, so everything from, uh, you know, working from home and certainly the kind of work we do at, uh, at the credit union required 
us to ensure that security protocols and all of those things were stood up uh, remotely and we needed to do that before we could allow people to work from home. So those kinds of costs are significantly higher in a decentralized environment than they are uh, in the office. Uh, we have members who are talking about, uh, we've provided uh, some special financing called a pivot loan, which is uh, provides six months interest free for businesses that are making investments that allow them to pivot in response to COVID-19. And we're seeing all sorts of things, everything from changing the way a warehouse works for an agricultural uh, wholesaler to changing uh, retail and restaurant and service environments to training and upskilling uh, different ways of working. So all of those are costs while there's little or definitely uh, less revenue flowing. So there's no doubt, and we're starting to see it in prices, right? So mm -hmm. everything from university tuition to the, the cost of some basic services are starting to go up because uh, haircuts, everything, because certainly uh, people don't have the ability to absorb those costs and are passing it on to, uh, to their customers. I was prepared to pay almost everything. Everything I had to get a haircut, yeah. Um, but no joke. I mean, there is a COVID charge in it, essentially that's emerging in our economy. Uh, do you have, yeah. do you have a sense how well BC is positioned to adapt to some of these changes? Well, I think that what we have is a bit of a, a blessing and a curse. Uh, you know, the blessing, which is the most important one, is that so far, at least, it seems that we have not had uh, the severity of the health, um, negative health effects that other jurisdictions, even in our own country, have had. One of the things I worry about with that, though, is that there is potentially uh, a bit of complacency. And so how do we really both understand the discipline that it's going to take for us to continue to work this way for several months, potentially uh, even years until uh, we have a vaccine or an effective treatment and consumer confidence can really come back again. But also that we're um, needing to spend the time to make sure that we're thinking about what the future looks like. So most business leaders that I know and are talking to are just talking about the next 12 to 18 days. Then when you get past the next 12 to 18 days, it's the next 12 to 18 months. But where do we see opportunity uh, for a region in terms of medium and long-term economic growth? Are there things that we can uniquely leverage here that will set BC up to thrive post-COVID? We, uh, well, I think there's some things we need to think about. So certainly, uh, our ability to welcome uh, immigrants and new Canadians needs to continue if our if our region is going to enjoy the diversity and uh, uh, and the cultural diversity that we have in our region. But we also need it economically. There's just not enough of us uh, to be able uh, to be able to do that. Uh, there needs to be, we need it for uh, innovation and labor market reasons to make sure that people with skills. Um, have access to labor and are bringing their skills into our region. So I, I think we have that reputation and we have the, uh, the capability to do that. Whether or not this puts a chill on that, uh, uh, both in terms of policy, in terms of affordability, and in terms of what we're seeing um, uh, in terms of uh, racism and making sure that we are clear that that's not tolerated and having adequate supports for people. Those are the things that we're going to need to, to think about. We have a very, we're a very expensive jurisdiction. 
that I see getting worse for all the reasons we just talked about. There is a COVID premium and people who we now know uh, we need to have in our economy, uh, consumers and people who do the frontline work of working in our grocery stores and, and cutting our hair and uh, working in the service industry, we need to have those folks um, in our economy and able to live here if we're going to see economic growth. So we have some challenges in terms of affordability, particularly um, the wealth gap that's created here. But we also have some opportunity in terms of diversity and immigration. But we need to make sure that we're not just taking that for granted and that we're working actively to protect that. I wonder whether uh, you agree that um, around early career and younger people who have been, of course, pretty badly smacked by by all of this, but the ones that are, in fact, uh, struggling through, whether we might see a small exodus from this city now that many of them can work remotely, that they they don't feel as tethered to the city of Vancouver, perhaps, because they can frankly find more space at a lower cost in order to do their work remotely. Well, we were certainly seeing that uh, even in the three years uh, leading up to 2020. So mm-hmm. people were, uh, you probably know that one of the most popular float plane routes was from Nanaimo uh, to our downtown harbor here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And that's because people could go there, uh, still uh, work remotely, particularly in the professional and tech areas, come to town when they needed to for meetings, uh, and then uh, have a better quality of life, better affordability, particularly uh, in raising a family. So I think that trend will continue and some of our uh, regional centers will probably experience uh, some growth. We saw a uh, one of our tech company members relocate to Williams Lake about 18 months ago. Wow. Uh, and the company of 16 uh, employees, a, a high tech company, made the uh, decision collectively that that is the center that they wanted to locate. So Long, long drive in in the morning, though. Yeah. I, <laughs> I know the highways are kind of clear. But, yeah, that's uh, right, except for in the winter. So I think we'll see that. I think we'll see that some more. But again, we need to think about uh, what that means for a city and uh, how we design a city that um, that welcomes those opportunities to connect with our regional partners, but doesn't exclude them unintentionally. Last couple of points. uh, You talk about the importance of us uh, having, of course, uh, strong signals about welcoming people into the community in this time ahead uh, and how important it's going to be you know, for our own diversity and inclusivity in order to do that. Um, of course, uh, it's a good segue because they're, they're mostly going to arrive at YBR. Um, boy, chose an interesting time to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So, uh, so many people have asked me that, uh, of course, why, why, uh, why YBR at this time? And, you know, um, YVR is uh, such an important part of our region economically, but it also, I observe, has a special place in our hearts as a city. Like, I don't know how many cities I can think of in Canada, let alone North America, where people love their airport. Like, that's not usually the thing that people love. But here, people love YVR. And why do they love YVR? They love it because I think it represents the best of who we are. It's very welcoming. Um as you just said, in an essential part of our diversity as a community. It recognizes our Indigenous heritage and the connection uh, that we owe uh, mm-hmm. to our Indigenous uh, colleagues. 
And also it's a key part of being a small open economy that uh, welcomes people and idea and goods in, in a way that allows us to thrive and prosper. So it has all of the ingredients of what makes us uh, great as a region. And so one of the things I'm looking forward to is as we're rethinking some of the things we've been talking about, uh, YVR continues to have a really important role to play. And it's not very often in your career that you get to or are forced to <laughs> reimagine an entire uh, industry, uh, yeah. let alone an entire operation. And that's what we're going to do to make sure that, that YVR continues to support our region in the way it has in the past. It's, uh, I don't mean to sound uh, droll about it, but I mean, I, I almost go back to my childhood now going, look, it's a plane, you know, because there aren't that many planes up there right now. Um, no, no. What's, what's your, uh, speculate a little bit, how, how are we going to get this back? What's the, what's the human psyche turn of the corner that we need here? Yeah, it's all about confidence, right? And so what we saw after 9-11 is our confidence in the safety and security of uh, flying uh, was significantly challenged. And if you think back to that time, there was not a lot of people who are getting excited about getting on an airplane anytime soon, and we saw a significant drop. This challenge is different for a different way, but it will require the same kind of rebuilding of confidence. Hopefully, uh, thanks to technology and some innovation in a less lining up forever way. Yeah. But we are we are going to need to think through some of those things. And the airline industry and aviation also was challenged uh, because of climate. And so needing to make some investments in the way that we work uh, to do our part to make sure that when people fly, um, they're doing it with the lowest carbon footprint uh, possible. So this is an opportunity to really rethink the whole value chain, uh, make sure we're doing the right thing uh, for the economy, for the planet, uh, and building the confidence of people so they can fly. So do you feel as the incoming CEO that in a way you also have to call a little bit of a timeout, a holding pattern for, uh, for some of the longer range ideas that there are for YBR? Yeah, the way I've been thinking about the uh, thinking about the long-term uh, planning uh, at YVR uh, is is in three phases, right? There's the things that we need to do, absolutely need to do right now, to make sure that uh, that YVR is uh, open for business and people uh, can both work there and travel there uh, uh, with confidence. So the health and well-being of our staff and our our uh, passengers is is paramount. Then there's things that we are probably going to do in the future some of which we need to accelerate and some of which we uh, need to put a pause on because COVID has changed the context. So we'll be looking at those kinds of things. Some of the projects that we have that are uh, partially completed, some other ones will want to accelerate. And then maybe the most interesting phase is then there are things that we didn't even think about six months ago that really we have an opportunity to think about and and that's where we'll take a little bit more time to be working with the business leaders and others in our community. Is there any kind of clue in there what you can help us with tomorrow about what might be in store? Yeah, there's no news I want to give you here, Kurt, other than I'm uh, quite keen to, uh, to hear uh, what the business community needs uh, in terms of support from YVR to make sure that we're being built for purpose in terms of uh, playing a leader uh, role as we rebuild post-COVID. Okay, a couple of last things, and they're, uh, they're slightly personal questions. How are you taking care of yourself? 
I uh, am very fortunate in that uh, I have a uh, very supportive family, both in uh, spouse and son and uh, extended family, and they make sure that uh, that we're doing fun things like playing epic games of Risk and Clue and all the old-fashioned things uh, where uh, I'm reminded I'm not the CEO of everything. So those are uh, those are good uh, yeah. both for my mental well, health and just to connect to things things that, uh, that uh, um, remind us of what joy and, uh, and fun is. Yeah, board games can really cut everybody down to size. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, and then last question, what do you think you've learned about yourself in this experience? I think I've learned uh, I've learned that uh, I am, uh, maybe have a, a different um, uh, a different view of glass half full and half empty. And so mm-hmm. while I in no way have minimized uh, the uh, challenge that that COVID has brought, by and large, I have had energy throughout. Um, it's been an exciting time. It's been a time of problem solving and creativity and mobilizing and proving that we can do things that uh, everybody said a credit union couldn't do uh, uh, in order to make sure that we're supporting our members and our communities. So largely speaking, somewhat paradoxically, I almost feel guilty, uh, but I've been quite energized during this time. Um, nice, good. Well, look, um, let's, uh, let's, Break it up there and wish you 14 good years over at YVR. I mean, gee. Oh, thank you very much. You thank go at 14-year blocks, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah I guess. <laughs> All right. Tamara Bruman, thanks a lot for your time today. Yeah, thanks very much, Kirk. You've been watching the BIV Business Leadership Series. I'm Kirk Point, publisher and editor-in-chief of BIV. We'll see you again. Thank you, everyone, for attending today's very interesting session. I'm Will Westring, Managing Partner of Faskin's BC Region, which includes our downtown Vancouver and Surrey locations. Faskin is a Canadian-based international law firm with offices across Canada in London, England, Johannesburg, South Africa, and Beijing, China. We are BC's largest law firm and have been serving this province's business community for over 130 years. At Faskin, we provide a full range of legal services, including assisting clients in relaunching their operations and implementing COVID-19 business recovery efforts. Please call us or visit our website for information on all the services we provide, including our COVID-19 Knowledge Centre. We really are in this together. Thank you.